Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. How was Rod Stewart, Dolly? Rod Stewart himself uh, was wonderful. His voice, I think, is getting better and better with age. He did all the bangers and left room for more. He is getting on a bit. I just realised you look quite like a wife. Like you're what he goes for, yeah. Blonde, sort of ageing hippie. Aging hippie. Fringe. You My could be the God. next. <laughs> um, I take that as a huge compliment, actually, and I you would love to be the next uh, Mrs. Rod Stewart. Although I'm pretty invested in him and Penny. Um, but, you know, he's getting on a bit, and you really felt it this time, because he kept talking about how chilly he was. <laughs> he kept saying it into the mic, how cold he was, and he kept coming back on, putting layers and layers on <laughs> Big woolly scarves. You should just do what the Rolling Stones do, which is just start with loads of layers. Like they mm. wear leather trousers and leather shirts, which makes me want to faint with sweat yeah. on sight. Yeah, it, but also it was not little, cold. That's as how well. those little bird men keep warm up on stage. He is quite birdy, all right. They all wear about eight stone in yeah. the 70s. Yeah, and he, the bit that I, I totally, I don't want this to sound like I'm taking the piss out of him because actually, you know, I believe that rock stars should be allowed to perform and should be celebrated and not mocked for you know, until their dying day. And I really love that he's finding a way to do these like huge tours. Like the man's doing um, a season at Caesar's Palace and he's in his mid-70s. Amazing. So I think it's great that he's finding a way to do it. But it is quite strange because like, for, I would say about half of the gig, he was sitting on a chair. I think he's had an issue with his leg, I was reading. But it wasn't like, a, you'd think it would be like a throne or something, but it was like a sort of, office wheelie chair <laughs> an office wheelie chair amazing so he was but bless him even when he was sitting on the chair he was still mo- moving the old spaghetti legs around <laughs> like he still really wanted to dance but no it was great and <clears throat> he played all my favorites and i am going to try and see him at caesar's palace i've decided you're going to go to vegas yeah and i'm seeing him in december as well i need to give vegas a second chance it did not impress me oh really oh yes i'm thinking about going go full hog Whole hog, three days. Save up about a year's salary to get really? through three days. Really? Oh. It's so expensive. I can't really go see him at Caesar's Palace for like one night, can I? Oh, that sounds like a challenge. <sighs> I'll work out the logistics. Trump's been over on a three-day state visit. He fell asleep during the Queen's speech. He didn't shake hands with Theresa May, although he did say, I don't know what your timeline's like, but you should stick around. And he's been keeping it pretty loose with Sadiq Khan. They are old battle mates uh, Sadiq let the blimp fly high again much to everyone's delight um, and Trump furious about this called him a stone cold loser and spelt his name wrong um, and Sadiq in return called Trump an 11 year old boy 
There's so many more stories as well. I've like literally just touched what did you the think? surface. This is obviously not the most important thing, but what did you think of the hairdo? He's got his new hairdo. I do think it's an improvement. Do you? Um, I, I feel almost bad for saying that because I know that we should actually be wanting him to look worse. Yeah. I think he looks better. <laughs> Sad that, actually. What that, do you think of the hairdo? I didn't love it, that wet look. But you loved it before. Wet look gel. I just love that old... Him and Boris Johnson are really experimenting with the... Uh, What's Bojo doing? In fact, bonnet. let's not call him Bojo because it makes him seem Affectionate. too fun and like a fuzzy Boris Johnson's got a haircut as well. What, what's the haircut? Um, it's just much shorter and it is actually so much better. He looks mm. human mm. instead of Scarecrow. Mm. Um, but the thing is, we shouldn't really be spending any time talking about their haircuts no we shouldn't no No. so let's stop actually yeah the guardian journalist marina hyde nailed the entire fiasco for me this week when she described the coverage of trump's three-day trip which ends the day this podcast is released as transcendently boring wank it's actually my new favorite acronym tbw I mean, you'd have to be a journalist as deft and intelligent as Marina Hyde to be able to get away with saying transcendently boring wank, and it seems so incredibly brilliant. Yeah, and that's why it works so well. And of course, Tory MP and PM hopeful Dominic Raab has been titillating us all with his declaration that he is not a feminist. Would you describe yourself as a feminist? No, probably not. But I would describe myself as someone who's a champion of equality and meritocracy. And, you know, my wife and I are a two-salary couple. Uh, I support her as much as she supports me. And I'm all for working women, making the very best of their potential. And that's something that's really important to me. Dolly's tweet went viral when she equated Rob with the subjects of her worst dates. I'm very, very sad to inform all of you that I have spent 85% of my mostly single life sitting in pub gardens with Dominic Robs, being told things like, I don't like the phrase woman's rights, it should be people's rights, you know, whilst I drink 13 vodka tonics. It was almost as good as your description of him in 2018 as someone who lives in a Clapham new build and showily goes to Clapham Common Sainsbury's, still in his sweaty gym gear to procure chicken breasts and broccoli. I'm <laughs> paraphrasing a man called Michael Carty, who resurfaced that description by you this week, because I love you, but not enough to dig through an entire year of your insane timeline. Do you know, that was actually stolen from Sophie Wilkinson, and she said uh, that another detail of it that I think is particularly vivid and brilliant is that he would go wearing a pair of flip-flops. <laughs> so ha- clearly had not been to the gym. I don't know if it's something to be proud of that Dominic Raab is becoming my Twitter specialist subject. <laughs> the actresses Sophie Turner and Jessica Chastain told Sky News last week that they won't work in anti-abortion states, although some people have pointed out that Turner previously worked in Northern Ireland for Game of Thrones to which I say, look not at what people haven't done in the past, but what they intend to do in the future. And I'm sure that other actresses and hopefully actors will follow suit on that front. Here's some heartening news. Wildcats are set to be reintroduced to England 150 years after they became extinct. Derek Goh, a conservationist, is building the first wildcat breeding complex on his farm in Devon. The cats, which look similar to domestic cats, but are larger, with a wider face and jaw, were widespread in England until deforestation and hunting took their toll. Well, good luck, Derek. And Mackenzie Bezos, who this year received the world's biggest divorce settlement after splitting up with Jeff Bezos, has vowed to give half of her $36 billion fortune to charity. Signing up to the Giving Pledge, a campaign to persuade the super-rich to commit to giving away at least half of their wealth, Bezos said she had a disproportionate amount of money to share. Her ex-husband declined to sign the pledge. 
What I found particularly interesting about this is that she could only become one of the world's biggest philanthropists once she divorced Bezos. He's the founder of Amazon, by the way. And thus she had access to half the money. She couldn't do it whilst married to him. And he clearly isn't interested Mm. either. Although he says that she's going to be a great philanthropist. Love Island is back. There's already controversy over the curvy contestant. You may remember, regardless of whether or not you watched ITV's mega show last year or any years previous, that there was um, lots of criticism in terms of the lack of both racial and body diversity. So this year they've responded with a slightly curvy girl. I've resisted watching it for one night so far because I get hooked and then it's every sodding night. Um, But actually I don't let myself watch telly on weeknights so it's every sodding breakfast. But let's see how long I last. Dolly, CJ, are you planning to resist Love Island for another year? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Fine. We'll see how I get on. This summer sees the trialling of the electric ice cream van to replace diesel vans, which saw ice cream vans banned from 40 streets in your fair borough, Dolly, of Camden. If you were wondering why you couldn't get a Mr Whippity, that's why. But that may now change. How many ice cream vans do you think are operating in the UK? 5,000. I feel like you might have read my notes. <laughs> I didn't actually. Did you not? No. There are approximately five to 6,000 ice cream vans operating wow. in the UK. I can't decide if that's more or less than I thought it would be. But hopefully there should be 40 more operating near your little window. So you can go and get yourself a flake. And I do love a Mr Whippy. I find the noise of an ice cream van, though, really eerie. Do it, you? It makes me... I, I think of a horror movie. And there's been a garden gnome heist. And no, it's not an April Fool. I read it in the Times. Police are hunting for two thieves who broke into a garden centre in Bitten, Somerset, last Monday and stole all of the garden gnomes. Police are asking people to look out for large amounts of gnomes being sold at car boot sales. God, I love this story. (laughs) More in the news of Kitsch. Google is among firms hosting mindful knitting workshops to help its overstimulated employees relax. Heartknit, a US company offering meditations. <laughs> I can see what they did there. Says that while knitting used to be about making a jumper, today it's more about the process rather than the outcome. Barbara Alderton swears by it. She has a weekly group she goes to called Knit and Natter. It's not a new idea, that, but I like Google trying to sort of rebrand crafting as the antidote to <laughs> our tech-stimulated society. And more warnings over cheap plastic surgery as a British woman has been left with sepsis after travelling to Turkey for a mummy makeover, a tummy tuck, liposuction and breast reduction, for which she paid £5,000, which is £7,000 less than it would have cost in the UK. 40-year-old Shariah Harrison has said that she is lucky to be alive and implores others not to travel abroad for plastic surgery. The civil servant was forced to take six months off work to recover and doctors in the UK had to repair the damage. I think this raises an interesting point about the strain on the NHS when they have to deal with botched plastic surgery. I recently read that dodgy lip jobs are at an all-time high and tons of young women are coming to the NHS to get them fixed. And I have to say, I feel really uncomfortable about resources being used like that. I'm not saying that people should get turned away, but I think you should do due diligence before getting surgery. It seems to be like so underregulated because these stories are really common and I don't think the NHS should spend money that it doesn't have and that we know is desperately needed for more mental health services and care for the elderly on undoing the damage inflicted by rogue surgeons. I agree with you. What's in the mailbag this week, doll? 
There were so many emails about the conversation on women who decide not to have children and the responses were really extensive showing how much the female experience of motherhood varies. I am rapidly approaching 60. I've never been married, although I've been proposed to by three men. Nice. Good on you, gal. Nor had any children. I enjoyed a successful career, latterly as one of the top lawyers in my industry, and until now I never felt any regret, shame or concern about my single and childless state. Freedom and independence is what I consciously chose. One of my principal reasons for becoming a lawyer was so that I wouldn't have to marry for financial security. And I've never wanted a child, although I do find it hard to walk by a puppy without petting it, and I've sometimes felt a temporary inclination to adopt a kitten. (laughs) I feel very sad that today's women might feel shame if they don't have a husband and or children, and I wonder why that should be the case now when it didn't feel that way back in 1918, 1990 or the 2000s. Do these women really feel shame, or is it just that your expectations or imagination of what they feel. Perhaps shame is more likely to be felt by those women who haven't remained single or childless from choice. Whatever the reason, I can confirm for any listeners out there that it is perfectly possible for a woman to have a very happy and fulfilled life if she chooses to live it without the unwanted baggage of hubby and brats. Love that as a sign-off. Why don't you tell us how you really feel about it? (laughs) And I also love a temporary inclination to adopt a kitten. (laughs) Side note for you, if you thought three... Marriage proposals was impressive. My sister's friend has thus far resisted nine. Really? Love that. No desire to get married. Nine men clearly quite wanted to pin her down. Do you know what happens to me all the time? First date... You just can't stop being proposed to. First date, man proposes to me. Second date, never calls me again. (laughs) It's happened to me about 20 times. It's a column in that, doll. Another woman says that she's being judged for her decision not to have children. I am a woman in my mid-30s. I have a successful career, amazing friends. I'm well-travelled and generally have a lovely life. I'm not currently in a relationship, have no children and have no idea if I will eventually have them or not. This is something I think about, but I feel that I will be okay whichever path my life eventually takes. Unfortunately, not everyone thinks this way. At family events with my extended family, all of whom of my generation are married with children, I feel like I have no value. They ask me no questions about myself or my life. They simply aren't interested because I haven't followed the normal path so far. It's so frustrating because I'm interested in their lives and their children. I also have a lot of other things to talk about and to bring to a conversation, but they don't really want to listen when I speak about those. I think that's a really interesting letter. And I have to say, I love that you feel okay whichever path your life eventually takes Mm. because I think a lot of people don't have that open mind towards the way their life would look you know without having fear Mm. whether fear internal fear or fear of judgment so um i hope you can continue to resist what anyone else thinks and just wait to see how your life unfolds Mm. because that sounds like the best decision for you this email was very moving I'm with a wonderful partner in a committed marriage. We always thought we'd have children, him particularly, but I never went for trying for a baby. I just thought my body would just do the thing if I let it. Then through a related health question, I found myself on the other side of the phone as a doctor told me just after my 35th birthday that I'm done with my fertility. The conversation with our NHS specialist was as informative as it was odd. She told me in the same sentence that we could try IVF and that my chances of conceiving through IVF were estimated at below 3%. My husband and I got back home and looked at each other in the kitchen. What do you want to do? We chose not to pursue IVF. Given my chances, it felt, as my husband said, like buying heartbreak. The choice of childlessness is not binary. It's nuanced and most people are extremely conflicted whether they have children or not. 
Thanks for sharing this discussion and giving me a space to tell this story. So far, I've only heard discussions around an active choice or infertility stories, which are all about trying against the odds. I think it's okay to accept what's in front of you and I wouldn't want anyone else to feel guilty about it. Thank you so much for that email. A couple of listeners also recommended the book Selfish, Shallow and Self-Absorbed, which is a collection of essays by women on their decision not to have kids. Oh, brilliant. I'll buy that. We can both read it. On a very different note, Panda, a few listeners sent in some photos of mountains in Utah. So you should feel vindicated. They do, in fact, exist. What have you been reading, watching and listening to this week? I read a book called My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell. It's out in January 2020. I've been resisting mentioning books that you can't buy yet, but this is going to be huge. It's already been sold in 24 territories, which is hugely unusual for a debut novel. Um, And you can pre-order it now, so I'm mentioning (laughs) it anyway. It reminded me of Sofka Zinoviev's Putney, uh, which we spoke about last year, which if you're being sort of a bit reductive, you could call it like, Lolita for the Me Too age or a millennial Lolita and it deals with how stories shift over time and of this is actually what I said about Sofka's book is the lies we tell ourselves and then the unwrapping of things that you thought were true I gobbled it up and I think it's going to be really big so if you are looking for a good what's January 2020 uh, a hibernating month read um, it's absolutely that because I think you're going to see a lot more of that and then if you pre-order it because I've only discovered this in the last year. Pre-ordering is so great because it lands on your doorstep the day of publication. That's fun. Mm. Good fact. So it's worth pre-ordering. I also read Grief is a Thing with Feathers by Max Porter, which came out in 2015 and was a huge success. Mm. But I never read it and it came to my attention again, prompting me to buy it, because it's a play at the Barbican. It might now have moved to New York, actually. Um starring Killian Murphy and adapted by Ender Walsh. It is a beautiful, devastating, curious book. It kind of defies analysis. And actually, in an interview, Max Porter said, because he works in publishing, and he said, you know, if I didn't... He met an editor at Faber, um, and he started talking about how much... They were talking about Ted Hughes, and he started talking... And Faber were reissuing some classics. And um, he said, what about The Crow? They said, no, we haven't planned to re-release The Crow. And they started talking about The Crow and it, you know, became apparent that he was so invested and lyrical and intelligent about this. And the editor said, have you been working on something? And he said, well, I've written this book where grief manifests itself in a crow. And The Crow is everything. The Crow is, um, you know, it's encouraging and mocking. It's comforting. It's cruel. It's... um, it's nonsensical, but it also speaks a language that no one else can speak. It's, a, you know, it's mythical. Mm. And he started talking about this book and the editor said, can I see it? And said, you know, this is a really strange book, but I think that we can put it out there. And it was phenomenally successful. And he said, you know, unless I met the right editor, I know that this is... He said this is an impossible book to market. And you'll know what I mean when so you buy abstract. it. Yeah, it's really abstract. And so it's based on a father who's a Ted Hughes scholar... And his two young boys, who are represented as one, and they lose their mother. And it's a shock. You know, at one point the boys say, this isn't how losing our mother should feel. Where are the sirens? Where are the emergency services? Why are we just sitting here quietly in our pyjamas? And I have read quite a lot around this, and people have said that it's just the most amazing book to have when you're going through a period of grief. So I'd really recommend it to anyone who is... um, 
finding themselves in that place. And apart from that, it's also just like a really beautiful piece of writing to read because it really challenges your perception of what a book can do and what words can do. And he was described, I think, in a Guardian interview as like a true polymath. And Mm. I think that's really the impression you get when you read it. So that's a really short book. And um, yeah, I can't believe, as I often say, I can't believe how long it took me to get round to it, but I'm thrilled I have now. And I really enjoyed Howard Stern on Fresh Air. Oh, I haven't listened to that one. Oh, well, I feel a bit bashful mentioning Fresh Air because I'm no podcat like you. <laughs> but I loved this interview. Um, Terry Gross really takes him to task about his sexism, mm. which he was really known for in the 90s. Um, you know, he used to rate women by like their titty size and all of that kind of stuff. And his explanation is really, A, she doesn't let it go. She's like, but like, I really didn't like that you did that. Why did you do that? And his explanation is really honest and I think really insightful about toxic masculinity a phrase I don't love but which does really encompass the shifting thought patterns and how we discuss sexuality and the pressures on both men and women to conform to sort of predator damsel binary and he says you know what I thought I was taking the piss out of young guys that thought like that he was like I wanted to kind of lay them out to bear and be like this is how bros think isn't it lame and he's like and then I realized that was not how people think and he said honestly I didn't self-analyze back then he's had 20 years of therapy and he's very into therapy and talks about it extensively he said I didn't analyze then you know I look at things completely differently now but what I really liked is he answered her questions it was an amazing skill because she was asking something very personal and she was being openly critical of how he'd performed and it was like he was replying to someone saying what's the color of your car Mm. he was tonally completely relaxed and he never he never said maybe he should have some people would think he should have he never said I'm really sorry for behaving like that Mm. there was no apology there was a genuine attempt at an explanation of why he behaved a certain way 20 years ago it's very interesting that and it's something we've talked about time and time again on this podcast about it comes into discussion often when you're talking about the the work that Ricky Gervais makes about whether those layers of irony when you are presenting a preposterous way of seeing the world or women or race or poverty or disability when you're satirizing ignorance around it whether there's value in that or whether that layer of irony is just obliterated and it looks like hands of the masses and it looks like you're personifying it and making light of it and i don't know where i stand on it actually i think sometimes people say that to get themselves off the hook totally agree or they think that's why they're doing it Mm. um i think but they still just want to have those words out in public discourse I think it's very hard to be trying to relay something really nuanced when you take the form or have said things in your life that very closely connect to that very thing you're satirising. Yeah. Because, like, it's okay to be complicit in the things that you're critiquing. I'm complicit in a lot of what we critique Mm. and a lot of what I write about. But I think then you sort of have to be a bit disingenuous about it and be like oh, but I'm just trying to reflect what you think, Mm. is a bit like, no, don't put this on your audience, Mm. put this on yourself. But he seemed to believe it, and I found it a compelling thought, school of thought, as to why he no longer spoke like that. And I imagine there's probably quite a lot of kind of, you know, ageing TV hosts who have made similar shifts in their sort of personal rhetoric. Yeah. And I guess we're going to be thankful for that. Yeah. And also, I, I definitely will, will listen to that because the very human way that Terry Gross 
connects with people in her interview, I think is so suited to a man reluctant to face his own misgivings. You know, it doesn't surprise me at all that something that you said that she said in it is, I want you to answer that. It really disappointed me. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a rare form of interviewing now. Mm. But it also has come from an interviewer that people really revere. And trust. And, and you can tell he's really, like, thrilled to be on her show. Yeah. So that really helps. Yeah. What have you been enjoying, Doll? I saw the European premiere of a movie called Animals, which was written by Emma Jane Unsworth originally as a book and has been adapted into a film starring Holiday Granger and Alia Shawkat. And uh, the book is one of my favourite books, truly one of my favourite books of all time. And the movie is just as blistering and painful and hilarious and beautiful and honest as the book. And it's so rare that something can jump from pages that you love into a celluloid life and for you to feel like both are equally, totally wonderful um, in their own right and in different ways. So the book... Have you read Animals? No, I will, though. Oh, it's so good. So I read it in my mid-twenties, and it's about... It's kind of been dubbed, like, With Nail and I for Women. Um, but it's quite, It's about female friendship. It's about two best friends living in Manchester, one of whom is in the beginning at the beginning of her thirties. The other one is at the end of her twenties. And it's kind of about female flaneurism and hedonism and pleasure, pursuit of pleasure and bodily abandon. There's a lot about drugs. There's a lot about alcohol. There's a lot about sex um, and adventure, appetite for adventure and living in a city with a kind of comrade in a way that I feel like men have been given so much time to talk about what that kind of joy um, and despair is. And you very rarely hear from women talking about that experience without them being traumatised by it or tinged with tragedy. And the reason Animals was such an important book for me, not only because it's Emma Jane Unsworth is just the most exquisite writer, truly the most exquisite writer, and so funny and so clear-eyed about matters of the heart, particularly when it comes to emotional relationships between women and kind of rivalry and, you know, competitiveness and all that complicated stuff that, again, you don't really hear about in such a textured way uh, from the voices of women. Um, but the reason it was so important, it actually had a massive impact on on my memoir because I'd never read someone deal with those subjects in such a realistic yet unapologetic glamorous yet unglamorized way and it was so radical for me to read an account of women without shame pushing the boundaries of experience in life all the all different kind of boundaries of experience using their bodies in ways that society does not require or demand of them challenging the notion of femininity and what it is to be female uh and I reread it a couple of years ago, and it is still remains completely radical for me now. So first of all, if you haven't read Animals by Emma Jane Unsworth, order it for your holiday. It's hilarious and beautiful, and you'll love it. And then the film, which has been transferred into Dublin rather than Manchester, 
is out in August at Picturehouse Cinemas. It was shown at Sundance this year and it's a total masterpiece. I've never watched something that made me so eagerly want to drink and also never want to drink again in equal <laughs> measure. So that is fucking good writing in my opinion. I love the way you talk about that. It was such like beautiful descriptions of the book and what it did for you and I'm literally itching to end this podcast and go read it now <laughs> you've made me desperate yeah i think you'll really really like it i can't it. wait i'll report back to you what else have you been enjoying this week on your recommendation i've been reading the book you wish your parents had read by philippa perry not a parenting book as she said no not a parenting book philippa perry is a psychotherapist very respected psychotherapist and uh, she's also done lots of other things she's made documentaries she's read agony aunt and has been for a long time And the book is, as Pandora said, not just about parenting. I think it's for anyone who has been parented or felt like they were were not parented. So So that's everyone. Everyone, exactly. (laughs) Because I think the thing I'm getting from it, I mean, if I were a parent, I think I would be getting so much from it in terms of how to relate to, to children and how to understand them and have better relationships with them even thinking about like my friend's children and how I talk to them earlier Zadie when we were munching on a bagel threw a complete wobbly because she wanted to hold a pair of socks and started crying I said to Pandora Philippa Perry would say that we have to validate (laughs) her her desire to hold her socks and say oh Zadie darling you do want to hold your socks don't you that's very important to you Um, but it's also just such a important book for for deepening your compassion and patience and understanding of how you were raised why your parents might have made those choices or behaved in that way and and what had happened to them to make those choices and behave and then in that way. And how you replicate it yourself. Exactly and that's you know I was in Freudian therapy for years like that is for me the the historical trail that we follow the pendulum that swings back and forth Mm. your parents do x therefore you react against it and do y then Mm. you know your children this pendulum swings the other way so i i find that so so interesting i've just finished the chapter in which she talks about how much of our own trauma past trauma we bring into parenting that we're not even aware of and When you read not only her theories, but these very specific stories and examples of patients that she's worked with. Love those, need those, like, actual examples for me to really metabolise something. But I don't know if you had this. I was thinking about my mum and dad and about how I know they were parented. And I suddenly was like, oh, I know why mum used to get annoyed when I did that. Or I know why dad was particularly strict about that. It's because of these things that I know they had in their past and I think it's just so important the thing that she talks about in such an articulate way is how we have to get rid of this notion of being a good or bad parent totally and we have to just see it as we can't see it in which celebrity is it that said I am a good enough parent Zadie Smith always says that yeah Yeah. that's my from one Zadie to another that that's that I try and make that my MO being good enough yeah because also what she said is the idea of good and bad parenting is so uh, cartoonish in terms of what we think a good parent or a bad parent is. And she said uh, you could have a parent who is particularly bad-tempered, ostensibly, who is scolds her child more than a totally saintly parent who's always grinning and full of resentment and not being truthful with her child. And it could be that the the first example actually is having a better relationship with mm, their kid. Mm. So we have to look at 
raising children and the relationships that we have with our children as not being evidence of being saintly or wicked um but two humans trying to learn about each other and connect to each other there is one bit that i really couldn't take on board though and that is and i know other parents who have fallen slightly at this hurdle in her book and that is that she entirely rejects sleep training you're joking so really. she says that by the age of four they should sleep through the night and she's like you know i know you'll be really tired but you've just got to kind of see this through and i read that and i thought no <laughs> fucking way there is no way i can do my job if i don't leave my child to cry out for 10 minutes yeah so i think for some people too much <laughs> well i'm into- but i learned tons and you don't have to yeah. agree with everything that someone writes no and still think they're brilliant exactly and i'm interviewing her at boris literary festival which is brilliant beautiful irish literary festival this weekend and i cannot wait to talk to her about this book that has really made me think about me and who i am and my parents and who they are and maybe hopefully one day what sort of parent i might strive to be and something that I'm desperate to ask her about is she has this thing about um, the most important thing you can do is take children's emotions seriously Mm. and I think that's such an important notion because and I hadn't thought of it this way she said that if you dismiss children's feelings as silly then what happens is that they divorce from their own instincts which is why often those children will end up being um, often like people pleasers. Because if if you're saying to a child all the time, no, what you're feeling isn't correct, you're just wasting my time or you're being difficult, then as an adult, you don't trust the feelings you have in response to people's behaviour, which means that you could make yourself vulnerable to abuse, to people being unfair to you. And actually the best thing you can do is validate your child's emotion so that they know in the future that when they have deep inherent feelings uh it's probably because they're reacting to something important but here's my question to her all of us in this life in the workplace in friendship groups in social situations have come across people for whom they believe their feelings are the most important thing in any space and you those don't want to foster that and those child. people are fucking nightmares you know mm. the people who truly mm. believe their feelings are more well, important you must ask than logic. Her this and report back yeah i'm I'll fascinated to, yeah i'm fascinated to hear her response because i imagine what she'll say is it's something that you have to cultivate in infancy and then it naturally matures into a place of well, logic maybe you as validate well. it but you don't indulge it yes so i understand that you don't want to go and do this and that that feels like an interruption of your day but nonetheless everyone else wants to go so that's what we're going to do i don't yeah. know maybe that's it yeah. so incorporate logic and uh, altruism the thing that i found most powerful um because i'd never thought i love the way she she writes a letter from a child's point of view so now what i try and do with zadie is quite often tiny kids have tantrums mm. when you stop them doing something in order to do something else yeah and she said you're wrenching them away from what feels like to them really important work imagine yeah. if you were in the middle of writing like you know another book and I was like Dolly we have to go to the supermarket and you'd be like fuck off I'm, yeah. I'm literally like creative juicing right now man yeah so it's foreshadowing everything so okay. now you know god knows how much Sadie understands Philippa Perry claims she understands everything if she does she's being a sod at times but <laughs> is it so now you know being like in 10 minutes we're going to go mm. in five minutes I'm going to put your coat on in one minute, I'm going to need you to stop playing with your socks, mm. so I need to put them on. And then talking them through it and putting on your socks, yeah. so I'm going to leave. So I am trying to do that. Or mine and Ollie's new thing is, 
I, I know you want to hug, sweetheart, but I can't pick you up right now because I'm cooking. Yeah. <laughs> so. but, and also, it's, it's, you forget, and this is something that she articulates so well, that in the short lifespan of a toddler, not being able to bash some Lego around is the biggest disaster of their entire life. Yeah, totally. Like, comparatively... And they can't communicate, which is the most frustrating... That's why there's so much grunting. Yeah. The most frustrating thing is they can't tell you yeah. what's so important to them. Yeah. So I imagine that they do an awful lot of learning about human behaviour in this time because it's... Totally. It's all sort of gestural or conjectural on your part. Yeah. I tell you what, it did make me think if I had a toddler or a baby, I think I would go and lie down in a dark room and never come out. <laughs> it, might, it really does make you realise that... It's intense. It's intense and also... The reason why I think it's such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book is it's intense without being didactic. It makes you realise how intense parenting is without being didactic. So she's very unjudgmental. And basically what you get a sense of as you read it is you are just going to fuck up and you have to just accept that and it's part of the journey. And I think the more that we we can make that clear to parents, particularly for mothers, the better, I think. Totally. Oh, I'm so glad you've enjoyed it. I can't yeah, wait thanks to for the recommendation. I love about it. her at Boris. Um, anything else to highlight from your week? I also love Tim Jones for The Guardian on Morrissey fans and the heartbreak of Morrissey fans. I thought it was a terrific read and managed to describe something I've been feeling for a while but haven't been able to put my finger on. For anyone who isn't aware of the latest depressing instalment in the Morrissey downfall trilogies. Morrissey, who has been saying increasingly offensive and, quite frankly, horrific things on subjects such as um, race and sexual abuse, caused further upset when he wore a For Britain badge on TV last week. For Britain is a far-right nationalist party founded by an anti-Islam activist. How extraordinary of him. Yeah. Uh, Well, in this piece, Tim Jones speculates on how... Johnny Marr might have been the reason that this was kind of muffled at the height of Morrissey and the Smiths' fame. Uh, And that he... Because Johnny Marr is, from what I can gather and from what I've read about him and heard from him, um, a very, very good-intentioned and and sweet man, uh, which is completely at odds with the personal politics of Morrissey. And he puts forward this idea that maybe it was Johnny Marr uh, working so closely with him that kind of restrained Morrissey or almost protected him from Mm. these very damaging views coming to light. And then he kind of, Tim Jones looks back at um, lots of other evidence that's been there for years uh, of his offensive Uh, beliefs and then he also discusses how it's particularly heartbreaking for smiths and morrissey fans to confront this as fact because for so long he was seemingly a mouthpiece for the marginalized and for so many people certainly including for me when i was younger uh made them feel less alone and like it was okay to be on the outside i think the problem though with being a mouthpiece for the marginalized or being once known as that is that the marginalised is not like a homogenous group. So there's an assumption totally. that your generosity or your open-mindedness or your support would yeah. extend to all of those configurations uh, when actually you might not have agree. any interest, knowledge or support for those. So it's like, it's it's a, I don't know, it's a, it's, it's a bind having that. So, you know, being chum to the weak. 
<laughs> you know, mm. is too general um, a caveat, I think. To assume that he yeah. would, that he would um, always yeah. be that person. Yeah. Here's a quote that really resonated with me from the piece. For those of us whose difficult teenage years were only made tolerable by the Smiths, who considered him a friend as he evoked our inner turmoil through Walkman headphones... Last night I felt real arms around me, no hope, no harm, just another false alarm. It's hard not to feel cheated by his behaviour. What a tragedy it is that a man who once seemed so uniquely placed to offer solace to people during their loneliest and most difficult moments has turned into this, a supporter of those who seek to crush the very weaknesses and sensitivities he once identified with. As Billy Bragg tweeted last year, summing up the singer's depressing descent, there was a light, but it now has gone out. I think it's a really important piece that Tim Jones has written, not only because it validates and explains the specific sense of betrayal that I think is so so many Morrissey fans feel, but also highlights the seriousness of, of his wrongdoing and the things that he's saying and what he stands for, which is vital to remember is far more important than the heartbreak of fans. Support for the Hyla comes from Regenerate Enamel Science. Regenerate Enamel Science is the first system that can regenerate tooth enamel mineral. 80% of common teeth problems such as sensitivity and yellowing can be caused by enamel erosion and acid attacks. And one of the major misconceptions is that erosion occurs only due to unhealthy diets such as sugary drinks and junk food. In fact, even fruit can cause acid erosion. Years of research in Regenerate Enamel Science laboratories has resulted in a three-step oral care regime consisting of an advanced toothpaste, advanced enamel serum and advanced foaming mouthwash. So snazzy, that serum for your teeth. The packaging of it is very snazzy as well. Designed to reverse the early enamel erosion process, Regenerate restores your Nash's mineral content and micro-hardness. For many of us, a lot of effort goes into our beauty regimes for hair and skin, but not so much for our teeth. I'm obsessed with teeth. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't, but now I do. And now everyone else can love their teeth too, Pandora. Just head down to a local boot store to discover Regenerate Enamel Science and the power behind healthy-looking teeth. It's our favourite toothpaste for ensuring that our gnashes look healthy and fresh. To learn more about the science, please visit regeneratenr5.co.uk. Thank you very much to Regenerate Enamel Science for supporting our podcast and helping our smiles dazzle. One of the wonders of the Western world has hit the headlines not once but twice this week. Hindus and its accompanying bridezillas. The first story that caught our attention is a new survey that reveals the average hen or stag do costs £204.82 per guest. The breakdown is this. Food and drink, £28.25. Clothing and accessories, £36.37. Transport, £26.5p. Accommodation, £27.82p. Childcare, £5.34p. Gifts, £35.47p. Activities, £45.41p. Childcare at £5 is slightly baffling to me, but hey-ho, it's from My Voucher Codes, which is about as reputable a data source as it gets. Whether the exact breakdown is correct or not is slightly immaterial, because for me, this number of about £200, astonishingly, from my experience, I would say is correct. Would you say it's about this number, Panda? I'm also obsessed with the childcare at £5.34. <laughs> and also, you know that it says the average cost is £204.82. I know what that 82 pence is. What? It's a penis straw. 
<laughs> I think I think that probably sounds about right. Too handy for a mahoosive night out. The second story that we saw, which definitely pertains to wedding mania experienced by so many brides and friends of the bride, is a bride-to-be who shared a question on a Facebook wedding group, which has gone viral. She wrote, So my friend who is maid of honour at my wedding recently gave birth and she hasn't lost the baby weight. I know it's not an easy thing to do, but all in all it's been like three weeks and she still looks pregnant. <laughs> My question is if on the day of the wedding she doesn't fit into the dress, would it be wrong to have someone else take her place? She said she has a backup dress and I'm saying hell no to that. I'm not fat shaming, but come on. My wedding is only one day and I'm not having it ruined by her or her baby weight. I think it sounds like she'll ruin her own wedding. (laughs) Also, I love that the Mail Online wrote that the woman is suspected to be American. (laughs) Like a condition. Now, these are obviously two different stories about two different things. Being a woman who wants a five-day Disney princess-themed Hindu in a huge rented country house in Somerset does not mean you're the sort of woman who shames and removes her best friend from her wedding party on account of her physical appearance. Pandora and I are well aware of that. But I do think they are two quite extreme examples of what can happen in a culture where the pressure for the most perfect, most expensive, bombastic wedding day has reached fever pitch. I also must caveat this conversation by saying I was very much privy to Pandora before, during and after her wedding, and I would not categorise you as a woman (laughs) who falls into story one or two. Thanks very much, Dolly. Have you been aware of this kind of pre-wedding hype and hysteria that renders total illogical madness or or kind of just self-absorbed behaviour. Obsessed with the childcare at 5.34, obsessed with the bridesmaid dropped for the baby weight. Um, <laughs> you, you have to wonder if these are true. It does remind me of the Canadian... The story of the Canadian woman who lost all of her friends and her fiancé last year because she demanded a Kardashian wedding and charged people $1,000 to attend. I would say that a wedding list is not that much different to charging people $1,000 to attend, but that's for a different segment. <laughs> she wrote on Facebook, I mean, seriously, people, what is $1,000? I just wanted to be a Kardashian for a day and then live my life like normal. Have to wonder if that's a ruse too. It seems impossible to believe. But then as you say, people really do turn into bridezilla around a wedding. And I think there is tremendous pressure on a woman to look her best, act her best, be her best. I think competitive hen culture is at an all-time peak. I'm pleased to say, I'm pleased to say I don't think I've been affected by it. Although my best friend did nudge me into organising a London hen and a Lisbon hen. I won't name her in case she thinks I'm shaming her, which I'm not. It was fun and I love her dearly. But it's I... so mad that you're hearing about this more and more. It's almost like it's almost like a chain restaurant or a chain hotel or something. It looks like you have to open a different hen do in all different parts of the world. Tear system. I so enjoy the stories, whilst also being relieved that hens in your 30s do seem to be more about a boozy lunch or yes. a boozy dinner. Yeah. Much more preferable for everyone involved. I must say these stories don't shock me at all. I haven't seen the kind of behaviour we're talking about in these news stories. I haven't seen that from my close friends who've had weddings, but I have seen it or heard of it secondhand. Also, you collect these stories like a sort of... <laughs> 
greedy conductor walking around with a bag for people. They are your favourite type of stories. I know of a woman who didn't ask one of her best friends to be a bridesmaid because she didn't match the aesthetic theme of the wedding. Yeah, I'm also obsessed by this. Was she blue and all the other humans were pink? Like, I don't, was she brunette, not blonde? You can't just leave that story there, don't I you? Do, I need to know the theme. It was hair colour, if I recall. <laughs> well, I mean, the least she could have done is bought a wig. <laughs> make a more scandy chic I also know of a woman who wouldn't let her bridesmaid bring her newborn baby to a wedding literally weeks old because she had a strict no babies policy that she couldn't bend for the guests so she couldn't bend for her best friend and when the bridesmaid said sadly obviously she then couldn't be a part of the wedding she allowed her to bring the baby and breastfeed in a secret back room so long as no one else saw her yeah, I have to say, flexibility with newborn babies is not uncommon. I was really stressed last year trying not to be a shit friend and pull out of any weddings. And I found myself crying about the no, no babies thing about five days after having a baby. Mm. I, I, that is one of the things I remember about the early days, is feeling like blissfully happy on my hormonal baby bubble, but wondering what the hell to do about sort of four weddings that had no baby policy and I was going to be breastfeeding. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that is a real um, a real issue, and I agree, like... It's really not a big deal. <laughs> I also think it's well not going to just... steal this, this little raisin. Yeah, it's not going to steal the right thunder. when they're that little. And also, it's just a matter of logistics. Like if you're not expressing, you can't be away from your baby. Yeah, totally. Another horror story for you. <laughs> One of my close friends went to a Hindu where the maid of honor told all the attendees after they'd transferred hundreds of pounds for the adventure weekend in a castle that an invite to the hen didn't guarantee a seat at the wedding. They were then all asked to bring alcohol on top of the huge amount of money that they had to pay for the hen to, which they barely touched. But the bride packed up in the boot of her car on the final morning and left without saying goodbye. Such a lovely touch, that end bit. This segment is bringing me illegal levels of joy <laughs> because you're in your absolute element with stories like this. You always have been, you always will be. You sniff them out like a wedding ferret. <laughs> I don't know how you'll ever dare get married yourself because there's so many pitfalls and potholes that you've illuminated. <laughs> you're going to have to... You're going to have to have like a sort of PR coordinator to make sure none of your previous public work catches up. It's going to have to be so low Your hand's going to have to cost five pounds. I know. It's just going to have to be catered by Pret, which I'm totally fine with, actually. That you, sounds like a dream Hindu. I mean, you you even managed to glean some incredible gossip from my wedding, which can't be repeated here, where people absolutely did not behave their best. Your eagle eyes never stop roving. I, uh, I'm like Rita Skeeter of weddings. <laughs> Literally, I do sniff them out. I've got one next weekend, actually. You are. That's the Rita Skeeter of nuptials. (laughs) Joking aside, this is a modern phenomenon that Pandora has touched on that I'm absolutely fascinated by. (laughs) How people behave around their weddings, particularly women, is something that I've written about and will continue to talk and write about until I've got to the psychocultural nexus of what the fuck has happened to all of us. I think, first of all, it is quite a sinister indication of just how much we value marriage, romance and traditional union for women. I'm always amazed, even occasionally for the most down-to-earth women, how spectacularly narcissistic a Hindu often is. The money and the time and the attention and the celebration so often demanded simply because a woman is getting married would make literally no sense in any other area of her life in which she achieved something. It would be 
so inappropriate if a woman receiving a doctorate or getting a promotion or who finished a huge project or even was just celebrating a birthday asked her friends to spend hundreds and hundreds of pounds and take days and days out of their lives and dedicate them (laughs) solely to celebrating her. And I don't mind doing that, truly. I don't want to sound po-faced. I've been on lots of Hindus that are really, really fun and I've really enjoyed it. I have, and I've really enjoyed (laughs) it as part of an experience of sending a friend I love off into a new phase of her life. But I do find it interesting that only a wedding for a woman, even in 2019, is something that unquestioningly requires this amount of jubilance. For anyone that's read uh, Jilly Cooper, Dolly might remind you of B.T. Johnson. I haven't. Who's B.T. Johnson? She's um, a partic- like a Rita Skeeter type, a particularly nasty type of social reporter who has an affair <laughs> with Rupert Campbell Black. If you invite Dolly to your hen or your wedding, watch out for the little notebook and the tiny pencil. Oh my God, when I wrote those um, letters in my memoir, there are kind of satirical letters yeah, inviting... Those. Uh, that are wedding invites and Hindu invites, I got so many messages from my friends who'd been married who were really, really worried that I had written about them. And uh, truly, I hadn't written or satirised anyone in particular, and I had to make it really clear to them that I don't blame women who get incredibly whipped up with with this culture. And I really didn't want to be mocking or sneering about it. I just wanted to find a way to examine how mad a lot of it is in a way that that felt um gentle so that's what but any woman who has ever invited me to a hen or a wedding basically sent me a nervous text so just to let you know please do carry on inviting me to your weddings and hen i would love to come i do feel quite strongly about it about these rituals because i think a lot of women who normally don't like having a lot of fuss around them um, be it on their Hindu or in the lead up to the wedding or on the wedding itself, feel like they have to acquiesce to these traditions. Some of them are very old, some of them are very new, a lot of them are just very weird and end up really not enjoying themselves. And I'm sad to say I know loads of women who have spent money they don't have or their parents' money, which has locked them into incredibly uncomfortable situations worn clothes they'd never wear, lost weight they didn't need to lose, only to find the process a huge disappointment or too stressful to enjoy. And I think I think that's really sad because a wedding as a public commitment of love, I think, is such a beautiful thing. And I think it's so sad that modern wedding culture seems to have ruined it for so many brides and grooms too, I'm sure. And I have to say, this is an area that the baby boomers totally nailed. As far as I can see, most 80s brides just put on a taffeta dress, went to a registry office and then went to the pub with their mates. Did your parents do that? You were, no, my you were parents, growing inside, yeah, weren't you? No, my parents eloped, just the two Naughty of them. Barbara. I know. I completely agree with all of that. I know I'm really lucky to have enjoyed my wedding day. I fell for one of the bridezilla tropes. I tried a juice cleanse beforehand because I thought it was the done thing. Well, that's literally, that's so not you. It's so depressing, isn't it, as well, that I thought it was the done, done thing. And I had to stop two days in when I stopped talking. My colleague said to me, you've actually run out of energy to talk. I think you need a sandwich. So I had a sandwich and it was totally transformative. I started wittering again about halfway through my emergency prep baguette. <laughs> and I realised with a shudder that I am not built for a juice cleanse. I'm so interested 
why you did that because it's so not something you would do. I know, I just thought, I'm getting married, this is what you do. See, this is the attitude, I think. I would never do one again. I think those things are lethal. But this is the attitude yeah. that's that so many women get whipped up in, of like, oh, it's this big special day, I've got to do these special things that you do for the yeah, special day. Yeah, I know, day. it was the only thing. I hasten to add, I didn't get like a personal trainer or start going to exercise classes or do anything like that. It was my only... Um, sort of attempt at embodying bridezilla perfection and just made me feel weak to the core. Yeah, I, I do remember you being quite chill about it all in the run-up. I just can't believe you can do some of those juice cleanse for like eight days. Yeah. Anyway, lethal. Not for me. For fact fans, the Hindu dates back to ancient Greece. Of course it does. What doesn't? When a wedding would take place in three parts, one of which was a specific ritual for the bride-to-be and her family and friends. A ritual just for the groom and his family and friends developed hundreds of years later. So it was actually the Hindu that came before the stag. Then in 1897, a publication offered an observation of a hen party as a time-honoured idea that tea and chit-chats, gossip smart hats, constitute the necessary adjuncts to these particular gatherings. And obviously when you actually think about the semantics of hens clucking and fussing and nesting, that would make sense in those terms. I went to a very fun hen do of my friend Saskia last month, who is French, and the party was called Enterrement de Vie de Jeune Fille, which translates as the burial of the life of an unmarried woman, which I quite like instead of a Hindu. I quite like it sounds kind of dark and mysterious and macabre and very French. That's brilliant. I like that a lot. It's not unlike the petit mort, a little death, aka an orgasm. What I want to know is what doesn't hark back to ancient Greece? Literally every single hedonic activity seems to date back to them we tweeted yesterday and asked you to email or tweet us your most bombastic hindu stories and pandora and i have been howling over your responses so brilliant thank you one listener wrote one of my best friends recently got married abroad leading up to the wedding of dreams she had three hindus one in her home city in the uk another abroad in a rather expensive spanish city and a bridal shower at her mum's house with the same people, practically, bar the pregnant and non-important. <laughs> the NIPs. I'm not made of money, so I had to bail on the abroad Hindu. Bridesmaid guilt is truly real. It's just as well I didn't go on the abroad Hindu as this wedding holiday has cost me more than a month's salary. Here's to living off noodles and toast for the summer. Here's one with an inventive theme. I actually think this is rather lovely, the story. I planned my sister's Hindu in March this year. She's a doctor and absolutely loves Harry Potter. I also love that her being a doctor ratifies... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of Harry Potter. So for her Hindu, I made her Hogwarts dream come true. I initially sent her a letter written with a Harry Potter writing kit, complete with wax seal, to invite her on her Hindu. She was picked up by her friend who told her to look in the cupboard under the stairs. In that cupboard was a hidden Hogwarts bag, and in the bag was a Hermione Granger costume and everything a wizard needs to attend Hogwarts, and a jumper that said, Muggle to Mrs. Outside her house... <laughs> Outside her house was a big wooden plaque I had painted that said Hogwarts Express, next train, 1pm, destination, Peak District. We hired out a big house in the Peak District that had a big dining room with high ceilings and church-style windows, which became our great hall. We hung massive flags for each of the houses and decorated with all the Harry Potter paraphernalia we could find. This is when it starts getting pretty cray-cray. When she walked into the house, we all hid up on the balcony with the lights off as we heard the door go we played the harry potter theme tune as she walked in i walked down the stairs dressed as dumbledore 
As I walked down the stairs, I turned on the remote control LED floating candles with blue tacked everywhere with my wand. Once everyone, <laughs> once everyone had arrived, I brought out the sorting hat, sorted everyone into houses and gave them their own capes. And we played games all weekend in our own Wizard Olympics. Hufflepuff were the winners. She got to live out her dream of being in Gryffindor for the weekend. I absolutely love how seriously nerdy this is. Her dream, presumably. But imagine if you hated Harry Potter. No, so I'd love to hear from the other, the other women on this end. I'd love to hear the other side of that story. My absolute favourite is, is this one. I can't, I've, I've revisited it. I screenshotted it so it, it can always live on my phone. Pay 250 quid for a hot tub and party food in the Hen's Garden in Essex. Had to get a limo to London, where I live. Went to scoff and banter. Got a limo back to Essex. Then got the train back to London, where I live. <laughs> this was another thing that kept coming up. Scoff and banter. These indignant women who had to go on Hindus and pay for a hotel in the city in which they live. <laughs> Here's another. Had a year's notice on a Hindu. Had to set up a direct debit to bride's mother and pay £65 a month for 12 months. Was informed we must not wear anything white. Took this to mean in the evenings when we dressed up, but was told to take off a white caftan worn to the beach as it was disrespectful to the bride. <laughs> One woman wrote in to tell us about her husband's sanitary towel stag. My husband-to-be was dressed up as a used sanitary towel and paraded around Vegas. As a politics teacher, raging proud feminist... Slash human, I was naturally royally fucked off. My own husband lost the uh, bottom halves of his two front teeth on his stag. Oh my god, I didn't know that. He was dressed up as a horse, but his hooves got tangled. <laughs> and he whacked his mouth on a table, and he was in bed by 7pm due to possible concussion. And he had to have expensive emergency tooth repairs done before the wedding. The irony is that the stress, quote-unquote, of all this apparently caused him to contract shingles. Something that made my entire family howl with laughter, as he's the least stressed person you've ever he is met. Very unstressed. And I couldn't quite believe the irony of my mother telling Ollie the day before our wedding to go and have a rest <laughs> because he had this mysterious case of shingles. He still mournfully refers to this period in which he feels something precious was stolen from him. I do think we should have a moment of solidarity and solemnness for stags because I have to say, what they have to endure sounds even worse than the worst Hindu. Possibly a minute silence. <laughs> Happy hen and stag season to anyone doing the conventional thing. Avoid the lamp posts, the horse costumes and the gimp outfits. And congrats to anyone who's decided that all this money-wasting guff is not for them. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Celebrities helping inmates on death row. A great extension of their brand power furthering the cause for amnesty and clemency or a dangerous celebrification of the judicial process and a misunderstanding of what is often complex and copious evidence. 
This week, Kim Kardashian West has made headlines for taking up the cause of death row inmate Kevin Cooper, who was convicted of murdering his neighbours Doug and Peggy Ryan, their daughter Jessica, and an 11-year-old boy named Christopher Hughes, who was spending the night at the Ryan's house in Chino Hills, California, in 1983. Cooper has maintained since his conviction in 1985 that he was framed for the quadruple murder. Kardashian West met with Cooper at California's San Quentin State Prison last week and has been lobbying California Governor Gavin Newsom to order more DNA examination into the case. Now, I imagine that most of you might be guffawing at this. For God's sake, what does our Kardashian know about prison reform? But actually, this is not her first rodeo as an advocate. She recently helped non-violent drug offenders, including Alice Marie Johnson, get clemency. And she's currently studying for the bar. In April, she shared an Instagram picture of herself with two attorneys who are her mentors, saying that she's been studying 18 hours a week in preparation for the baby bar, a mini bar in 2022. She isn't the first celebrity to campaign for the release of those that some believe are wrongly convicted for murder. Johnny Depp, The Hobbit director Peter Jackson and Patti Smith were amongst the celebrities who campaigned for the pardon of the West Memphis Three in the late 90s. The trio were jailed for the murder of three scouts and served 18 years before being released. It's very easy to sneer at things like this, but you can't deny that Kardashian West is trying to extend the power of her fame to social reform. However, I feel really torn about this, not specifically this case, but because I hope this isn't a precedent for celebrities advocating for the release of inmates convicted for murder, full stop. I hope it's a precedent for celebrities to throw their weight behind those wrongly convicted or to take up causes that they feel passionate about. But how do you truly know the difference? I think being impassioned about a cause and using your platform to bring light to it is obviously a very admirable thing. And she has an interest in justice if this is something that she's training to do. But I agree. I think in a world where validity of opinion and volume of voice is so weighted toward celebrity for no other reason than we just love celebrities, I think this can be quite dangerous. I'm increasingly cautious of anything that dilutes the justice system and instead hands the job over to celebrities or citizens. On May the 31st, Kardashian West tweeted, I had an emotional meeting with Kevin Cooper yesterday at San Quentin's death row. I found him to be thoughtful and honest, and I believe he is innocent of the crimes for which he was convicted. She followed up with, I am hopeful that Kevin will be exonerated, since DNA testing has now been ordered on Kevin's case, and I remain grateful to Governor Newsom for ending capital punishment in California. In the States, there's been a lot of coverage of this case. New York Times journalist Nick Kristoff wrote an expose last year that claimed that one test could exonerate Cooper, but California wouldn't do it. The same piece begins with the statement that the sole survivor of the attack said that three white intruders committed the murders. A woman then told the police that her boyfriend, a convicted murderer, also white, was probably involved. She gave him his bloodied overalls. According to the piece, the sheriff deputies threw away the overalls and convicted Kevin Cooper. So it's not as if Kardashian West has grabbed the baton for a case that isn't already being discussed. Mm. She's taking something on that a lot of people have been probing. Slate reporter Lara Bazalon tweeted that the case was scandalously racist and corrupt and that Kardashian West taking it on is a big deal. I think there will be 
scepticism because of the Kardashian history when it comes to defending criminals. Mm. Robert Kardashian, Kim's father, famously defended O.J. Simpson in the high-profile case where he was accused of murder. It was a strange choice, even more so in hindsight. I mean, I think even Robert Kardashian acknowledged its strangeness in hindsight. So I think a lot of people reacting negatively to her involvement in protesting this man's innocence might be unfairly conflating this incident with the very different one her father was involved with all those years ago. Absolutely. There are, as you would imagine, in complex and emotional cases like this, a lot of detractors, as you say. It makes me feel sick to my stomach and I pity her for what she's doing to us. There's nothing to justify what she's doing to us. The immense pain she is causing us, said Christopher's mother. Kim obviously has not read all of the actual evidence. She's bought into half-truths perpetrated by the defence. If she actually sat down and read the transcripts of all the trials and appeals, she would be sick to her stomach to be in the same room with him. Cooper's lawyers are using her for her reality show status because they can't use the truth to try to help Kevin Cooper. The truth just condemns him. She portrays herself, she writes, as being for women's rights and for the women's movement, and yet she is supporting a rapist and murderer. And that's something that others have commented on, that innocent or not of the murders, Kevin Cooper has a previous criminal past of rape and burglary. And why is Kim Kardashian West putting her weight behind a rapist rather than someone else, people have questioned. And I I do think that's a valid question. Yeah, me too. But I think perhaps she's doing this as a trainee legal professional rather than as a celebrity interested in human rights. And as a legal professional... Maybe she's concerned about his innocence and the truth in relation to this specific case rather than trying to defend his innocence as a character, maybe. I don't know. I think that might be a charitable reading of it. I mean, we can't speculate as to whether Kevin Cooper is innocent or not. I haven't read the 94-page response from the San Bernardino County District Attorney in response to his latest attempt to get clemency. But I think where we can discuss this is that we both yearn for and then fear when celebrities become politicised. Think of those celebrities who didn't speak out against Trump during the elections. Taylor Swift was vilified for it. And then how often we lament that they could do so much more with their power for charity, for reform. And then we have Kim Kardashian West doing just that. So why do I feel so uncomfortable? For me, I think it's more of a general discomfort with how platforms such as podcasts social media and youtube are being used to pursue justice i was talking to my friend india about this this weekend because we both love investigative true crime audio series but we were talking about all of the various kind of ethical implications of making them and listening to them and i do worry sometimes particularly with the rise of the teenage vlogger trying to solve crime literally guessing Madeleine McCann's whereabouts from their suburban bedroom. It does make me worry that our understanding of the justice system is being compromised or just shaping our general understanding of the notion of justice and the truth, particularly for very young people for whom a Kardashian or a teenage vlogger may be the most authoritative and respected voice for them on the subject. That's really true. A lot of people don't read the news. So their first understanding 
of a case like this would be... What Kim Kardashian says about it. Absolutely. Making her second appearance on this podcast today, in her book of 2009, Celebrity, How Entertainers Took Over the World and Why We Need an Exit Strategy, one of the funniest books I've ever read about celebrity culture, Marina Hyde says that entertainers have vastly exceeded their mandate. She calls it mission creep, where after an initial success, so in this case, Kim Kardashian West has become a reality TV star, social media son and a businesswoman, there's then an expansion of their enterprise beyond the original goal and she opens with uh, Richard Gere on the eve of the most recent Palestinian presidential elections a televised message was broadcast to voters in the region hi I'm Richard Gere smiled its star and I'm speaking for the entire world did you miss the meeting at which this got decided does it seem like an encouraging state of affairs do you find it confusing that Richard Gere should claim not simply to be speaking for himself but for the whole of earth Apologies for startling you, but this is your world. Try not to choke on it. (laughs) Do you think we can apply this to Kim Kardashian West's campaigning on death row? Or do you think that limiting her and her scope is actually quite an anti-feminist thing to do? Sort of a, all right, love, you're great at wearing bodycon and having adorable children and speaking languorously on TV, but, you know, don't sweat the big stuff. Is it a bit like the person who tweeted me telling me when I wrote about the anxiety crisis for the Sunday Times as a fashion columnist to stick to shoes? Is Kim Kardashian West an innocent man's last hope? I don't know. I'm really still not sure how I feel about this story. I'm sure our listeners are as agonised as we are deciding where they stand on it. So as ever, let us know your thoughts by emailing us show at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening to the Hilo. I hope you enjoyed it in scoff and banter, or maybe you are scoffing and bantering uh, whilst listening to it. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. That helps boost us in the charts, and it helps other people find us. And knock Peter Crouch off the number one in the chart. Oh, my God. Ollie was half asleep listening to Peter Crouch a couple of days ago, and I just went, traitor! And he literally leapt out of bed and was like, what? And I was like, listening to Peter Crouch. He was like, I cannot believe that you just gave me a a. 6am heart attack. I just cannot imagine a world now where Peter Crouch is not on top of us every single day. And there's some hashtag hen banter for you. <laughs> you can email us show at gmail.com or tweet us at show. Bye-bye. Bye-bye from us and goodbye from my darling Rod Stewart. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.